Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. If you're not familiar with Euros Hartley's, we are a proudly West Australian company and a leader in our field of being able to offer a broad range of financial services, including corporate finance, institutional sales, research and wealth management. Please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com to see the services we can provide. We continue to grow our show, and in this brand new episode, we have something a little bit different and in many ways quite special. Australia has many great fund managers, but only a few have achieved the respect and success over such a long period of time as Mr. Peter Cooper, the founder of Cooper Investors based in Melbourne, who managed some $13 billion for their clients. Whilst he won't acknowledge it himself and shies away from this type of recognition, Peter has been referred to as an investment legend and a titan of Australian funds management. An opportunity to sit down with Peter for an extensive conversation and gain such deep insights is rare. Peter covers off on his background and what led him to his love of investment, the influence of the great Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, long-term investing and the Cooper Investors philosophy, and the present state of the world, including his observations on the rising interest rate and rising inflationary environment, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, India, China, Bitcoin, oil, gold, governments, the Australian dollar, decarbonisation, and his views on active versus passive investing. As they say, knowledge is no burden to carry. And this is a podcast where Peter shares his valuable perspective and one that can give some serious understanding of life as a highly regarded, long-established manager and investor of money. So without further ado, it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce to the Euros Hartleys Finding the Front, Mr. Peter Cooper. Peter. Welcome to Finding the Front, and it really is such a treat to have you in Perth face-to-face after the hiatus we've had here in Western Australia with our lockdown, and the fact that you could actually fit us into your schedule on the few days you are in Perth is just so fantastic. So thank you very, very much for your time. Pleasure to be here, Tim, and uh, it's good to be out and about around the traps. You know, it's been, I think, nearly three years since I've been to Perth, and I love it here. Yeah, look, it's just so excellent. So look, just for our listeners' sake, before we kick off, I just wanted to put a brief framework around your career for our listeners. It's a celebrated career. It is very well documented, and I, but I just want to put it into context with regards to our conversation and your journey. So for the listeners, Peter has been described as an investment legend. Now, I read this in an article recently, and he is seen as a very highly regarded and admired member of the Australian funds management industry that is committed to long-term investing, and he's not one that seeks the spotlight. So we are very privileged to have him on the podcast with us. 
He has over 30 years of investment management experience, which commenced when he joined the New South Wales State Superannuation Investment and Management Corporation. He was there as a specialist industry analyst and progressed to deputy portfolio manager of a $7 billion portfolio. In 1993, Peter ran the Australian stock portfolios for BNP and then joined Merrill Lynch Investment Managers, where he worked for seven years, culminating in his position as head of Australian equities and managing director. Again, where he oversaw a team managing $7.5 billion in Australian equities. It progresses from there. He founded Cooper Investors as a specialist equities fund manager 21 years ago in 2001. The amount of funds under management has grown over this time to approximately $13 billion. They invest on behalf of some 4 million Australian individuals and families from all walks of life and all manner of employment and industry. Their clients include large pension and superannuation funds, religious institutions, Australian state government agencies, school endowments, charities, high net worth families and retail clients. Cooper Investors currently runs some seven funds with the flagship fund being the Brunswick Fund of which Peter is the portfolio manager. He's been running this for nearly 18 years, achieving an annualised return before fees and expenses of around 16% since inception. That is quite something. We know past performance is no guarantee of future performance, as they say, but that is quite a fantastic track record, Peter. Thank you, Tim. Just one small correction. I'm the Joint Portfolio Manager of the Brunswick Fund, along with Justin O'Brien, who's been with us for roughly five years. Right, okay. Yep. That's good to know. So it's great to have you on the show, but the important part of finding the front, as that background illustrates, is to provide our listeners with some insights into your background and what led and shaped you into being the real leader you are today in the field of investment management. And I just thought we'd start. You grew up in Melbourne, but there's a bit more to that before Melbourne arrived. In terms of my journey, Tim, it was, I was actually born in Brunswick, Melbourne, but my family moved. My dad was a jail guard at uh, Pentridge Jail, and he came here as an immigrant from New Zealand, was in a quite a successful family business, but ultimately sort of went through that normal life cycle of, of family businesses. And uh, so he came to Australia without anything. His first job was uh, a jail guard at, at Pentridge, but he took the family up to the Northern Territory. And in my, uh, my sort of formative junior years, we lived in a hotel in Pine Creek, which is about two hours south of Darwin. It was a little 150-person town in the outback, supported by an iron ore mine called Francis Creek back in the, the boom days of the, the wow. late, late 60s. Yeah, so had some, I guess, exposure to resource cycles, agricultural cycles, outback Australia. So it was very formative times growing up in a hotel in Pine Creek. Coming back to Brunswick, tell us a little bit about Brunswick. What was it like? Well, I left when I was two or three years of age. Yeah, okay, um, yeah. But back in, I was born in 1959, and in the, in the 60s, it was very much a post-World War II immigrant suburb, you know, Italians, Greeks. Today, it's been gentrified somewhat, but it has a, a whole new wave of immigrants, namely from Asia and, and, and Middle East, if you like, in terms of that wave. But it's a very interesting suburb from that dynamic, you know, just very entrepreneurial, very creative, hardworking, working-class suburb, certainly back in those days. and I uh, always have to laugh. My, my father sort of likes to talk about his experience in Pentridge Jail and Ronald Ryan, if you, if you remember, was the last man hung. And so he shot a fellow called George Hodson, who was a family friend. And so my dad sort of talked quite a lot about that during his, yes. his time there. Wow. And one of, the, one of the funny lines he likes to use is that there's very little difference between the jail guards and the prisoners in, the, in Pentridge back in those days, the, <laughs> you know, the demographic and 
generally the wives of the prisoners lived in the in the suburbs and so forth. So it was a quite an interesting social uh, exposure, if <laughs> yeah, you like. Yeah. Well, clearly, I mean, you, you do reflect back on your time at Brunswick because that's what you called the fund when you started. Yeah, look, it's, um, we were sitting around sort of twiddling our thumbs thinking about names and couldn't really come up with a name. So, you know, I latched onto the word Brunswick, but it's, it's really stuck. It's what we actually see in companies with founder and family linked companies. You know, there's, yes. there's sort of the professional aspect of investing, which we're very diligent at executing on, but there's an emotional investment for me, at least in this fund, given the background and the, I guess the durability is something that really is front of mind for CI and the, the CI way. We can talk a bit about some of the attributes behind that, but yeah, like growing up in those sort of environments, my dad went on to be a kind of prolific uh, small business owner, some successful, some not so successful, but really went on the full roller coaster ride of the 60s, 70s and 80s. And we can talk about sort of economic cycles, very different than today's environment um, up until recently of, you know, sort of high interest rates, liquidity squeezes, bank controls, really made it tough on business and family life, if you like, in small businesses. So yeah, I got I guess have had a you know a long exposure to those type of conditions, which really do shape one's psychology. You know, yes, I'm happy to talk about that in terms of the investment philosophy and risk and, and and latency. So well, one of the things I drew out of my research around your past was that you really did grasp that hardworking style of life that you've family had through that small business style of life, I suppose you were able to see firsthand they were working flat out. Yeah. Well, you know, small, as people in small business can attest, you know, our family life was two working parents, seven, and these are seven day a week businesses generally in the hospitality and food industries. And my dad also had a contract cleaning business doing Air Force bases up in in Toowoomba and university. So that was out of hours, still seven days a week. And so, yeah, you just, I guess, you know, it's not like a uh, university education. You just live in that as an experience and you see that and you get out of bed early. And, you know, if you don't get out of bed, the business doesn't go forward. So it's just that kind of attitude towards hard work. I think there's, there are some limitations around hard work and working smart and, and so forth. But, you know, I think I'm just such a big admirer and I've had a bit of exposure to studying in, when I was working at the University of New England, there was this kind of research unit there into small business and industry associations. And we used to do a lot of, I guess, analysis on small businesses. And I've got such a lot of admiration from my own upbringing, but also analysing these businesses, you know, the employment that they provide, yes. the underbelly of the Australian economy. And in many respects, they're kind of politically quite a weak group, it would seem to me. So, and, and quite a disadvantage when I mean, we look at the regulations and the barriers that, and competition, COVID, you know, you walk along Chapel Street in, in South Yarra there and, you know, it's just devastating yes. seeing small businesses really feel the brunt of a lot of the, you know, the COVID lockdowns and, you know, the, the pandemic consequences. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've got a lot of empathy towards that sort of sector and community. I think a lot of the innovation now that we're seeing in, you know, more uh, technology sensitive service, you know, advanced manufacturing sort of industries, you know, very much come out of individual founders and, you know, ultimately small business. Fascinating. It's very sad the the impact COVID had on, like you're saying, with Chapel Street and those small businesses. How is it recovering now? I went to the US a month ago to get married in Hawaii. And when I came back, and this was last week, the streets of Melbourne were bustling. It was actually really, re- really interesting. You know, there's a real, real step change in terms of people coming back. The Fridays, as I say, you know, Thursdays become the new Fridays. That seems to still be uh, operating. But yeah, there was a real, real energy in the, you know, in the Collins Street food court where I get my lunch. Oh, good. 
Geez, it's great to hear. You ended up, just talk to us a little bit about your schooling. So you went to a few schools, but you ended up at the Gold Coast? So primary uh, formation happened in the Northern Territory, then the family moved to the Gold Coast, went to a bog Catholic school called Aquinas College. Yes. Look, it's, um, you know, not to be recommended, really. It was a pretty basic education, and I was very proud, uh, and one of the you know, most joyful days of my life was to be able to afford to send my kids to private schools in Melbourne. So, But the upbringing at Aquinas College was kind of interesting in a formative way. It was, you know, like, so the school was very, had a very sort of uh, gambling and, and alcohol celebration was quite a big part of it. You go to school fate and, you know, parents would be down the back playing two up and my parents were, my dad was quite big into races. So as, as kids, we used to go along every Saturday, the Gold Coast races and half my teachers were pencilers. Right. You know, moon, yeah. moonlighting and, and so forth. So, you know, it had a, you know, very sort of, I guess, middle-class Australian existence. You know, it's, it's something, I guess, when I look back, it was quite a sheltered education. You know, growing up on the Gold Coast, it was basically, you know, rugby league and surfing on the weekends. And yeah, it was a simple life. Peter, I noted what had an influence on you was the racetrack. You used to go along there a little bit with your folks during those times. Can you just give us a bit of an insight into that? Just leaving aside the ills and evils of gambling, which yes. I'm not a, not a fan of, what, I guess, betting and, you know, sort of progressed towards what you'd call professional approach to investing on the, on the racetrack. And it started out and went into my early 20s as well when I was at university, had a group of friends. We'd go to, you know, country racetracks where information was very disparate and hard to find. But, you know, when you found it, it was, you know, really interesting to see how that played out on racetracks. And so putting evaluation around risk, sources of information became, you know, you're talking about trainers, strappers, informed people at, at racetracks. You know, it's just really fascinated me from a... Uh, kind of a risk risk approach yes and you see anomalies in betting markets and it's become incredibly sophisticated now and you yes. know, AI and data analytics in that space but this predated all, all of that so you know that sort of really uh, I guess got me interested in what you'd call factor analysis you know looking at different influences upon outcomes which I've taken into my I guess company investing career and long ago gave up the uh, the racetrack life I have a funny story though Toowoomba races, Clifford Park's a very strong race, right. racing community. Yes. One of my mates was the uh, camera guy there. And it was in the old days of the old, I think, 33 mil, 35 mil cameras. And so he gave me a bit of a lesson on how to do this. He, he was on holidays. And so you climb up a tower and I'm sort of three levels up and the horses are coming down the straight. It was a you know very close race and it was a triple dead heat, three-way <laughs> three finish, right? Right. And, and trust me, the midweek races, you know, it's a pretty hardcore community down there. And so I, I've hit the camera button, you know, 20 metres from the line. The film goes, you then turn off all the lights, pull the film out, and you've got three buckets of chemicals. And so being a bit inexperienced, I put the, the film in the wrong chemical, the finishing chemical bucket, oh, no. which completely destroyed the, uh, the film. You then roll it up, you shoot it down a little pipe to the judges down, <laughs> down below. They're yelling out, you know, I probably can't <laughs> no. say on, on, the, on the call what they said to me, Tim. Um, and, then, and then the judges have to make a decision because there's no film. The judges also put up the, the film down where all the punters are. I kid you not, the punters were shaking the tower. <laughs> I couldn't come <laughs> down right. for about an hour afterwards. <laughs> so, look, that, you know, I had some great times in, um, in that community and that, that was all through university is what, one reason I didn't do so well in the first three years and, uh, like to say, I did a four-year uh, economics degree that took most people three years, so I was a, a little bit distracted. 
But on that, Peter, that's a fascinating story and thanks for sharing. When you say you went on to do an economics degree, one of the things that we often talk about on the podcast is how did you know what you wanted to do at the time? Did you have any inkling into economics and finance or that sort of thing? You investing? Know, I, I, um, Outside of the race track? I can honestly say, so I was 17 going on 18 when I went up to Toowoomba, University of Southern Queensland, because my parents moved there. I had this contract cleaning business up there. So that's why I kind of ended up going there. Yeah. But, you know, growing up on the Gold Coast, I, I had no idea about investment banks. I couldn't tell you what an investment bank is. I didn't know much about institutional investing. My dad used to buy and sell mining stocks, which kind of got me interested in. He was a, you know, a bit of a small-time real estate investor and, you know, booms and busts in that. So I had a very innate, I guess, interest in investing. Yes. Which was probably initially expressed on, on and at the racetrack. And then when I moved to Sydney, I, I took a couple of courses in, in finance and so forth, which I did, did quite well at. I was sort of interested in that. I remember taking a course in futures, but I had no idea of kind of relating that academia to actual, you know, organisations in Sydney or Melbourne. And, yes. you know, you could say quite a sheltered understanding of, of the world. And it's, you know, when I compare young kids today, they just seem so advanced to, relative to what I was. When I moved from um, my job at the University of New England to Sydney, I had a, basically a choice, choice of jobs. One was OTC, the overseas telecommunication company, and the other one was State Superboard, New South Wales. I've still got the ad, actually, was that I looked at as a three-line ad in the public service sector of the Sydney Morning Herald, and it was for 17500 a year. And then for six years, I'd go up about $500 a year. Right. Um, and I had a few mates, you know, in, into that six years or in investment banking. And, it, you know, like, when that gap got so wide, I thought, geez, I might have to leave here. <laughs> I might have to look There's around a little bit. Yeah. But long story short, I made a choice between the, the sort of business analyst at OTC and investment management or assistant analyst at, you know, the State Super Board, New South Wales. And yes. it was the innate, I guess, interest in investing the other job was paying 27000 I took the $17,000 job for the reason that I was interested in. It was a good advertisement, I think, for just don't worry about the money, just follow the passion. Yes. You know, you hear that a lot, but I completely agree with that idea because you can't sustain your career and interest without that interest would be my view. So I was always very kind of interested through that avenue. And once I got into the State Super Board, I sort of, you know, talked about brokers and, you know, investment banks. A whole and, world and, opened up. You know, found Warren Buffett's newsletters. And so I just yeah. went on a, you know, six-year I guess, self-learning exploration around investing. And it was just amazing to me. And it's, you know, I look back once again, I, you know, talk about mentorship with people. I never really had mentors to, you know, kind of fast track through things. I sort of tended to be, I like to say, Tim, um, I know this is sort of a personal story here. I consider myself a slow learner. So if you look at my career, I tended to do things very late in my career. I didn't have a real job until I was 26, 27. I was the ultimate well, the original millennial, let's say. You know, I sort of bobbed around, did yes. a few jobs here and there, went overseas for a couple of years and, you know, just sort Had of- Had a good time? Yeah, I, I just, my motivation, well, you know, I was always a hard worker, but my motivation was if I wasn't happy, I moved on. So, you know, this sort of journey through the investment field, I think it's so exciting for kids and, and younger people. Uh, my kids and, and their friends are, you know, so inquisitive, some of them inquisitive about, you know, a lot about crypto and, you know, different ways of investing. The access to information now is just incredible. Yes. And, you know, multiple sources, you know, podcasts and, and YouTubes. When I was on my uh, journey of exploration, it was pretty limited. You know, annual reports were, you know, you never got revenue lines. In, in 1987, you'd get annual reports. There'd be nothing in the annual report. You know, like it's, yes. you know, it's very low disclosure. So, 
you know, that information and ability for people to kind of really self-educate now is, is amazing. Based on that, how – and he was such a big influence on you, the, the Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, John Templeton, Peter Lynch, that sort of thing. How did you come across these guys? I think this idea of cumulative knowledge – so the short answer is through books and, you know, going to the state super there, you you know, talking to different people. I just can't remember exactly the, the time, but – you know, just started, I guess, going from one to the other. But my introduction to Peter Lynch was just through the, the books that he wrote. Yes. I used to go down to the, in Sydney there, the Stock Exchange had a bookshop and, you know, there was, there was Buffett and Lynch books back, back in those days. But singly, the most important influence upon my investing career have been books yes. and, 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 and quality newsletters, singly, like by such a long margin, it's not funny. And it just astounds me. Um, th- thank you for the introduction, by the way. It was uh, very humbling to hear those nice words. But seriously, some of the, you know, amazing investors and, you know, you can't go past Munger and, and Buffett in many respects. We'll come back to that point in a minute. But, you know, their ability to share and commun- their communication skills are just incredible. And I, I don't consider I'm in that category. But the ability to actually leverage the information the, the, the way they've gone about explaining them, not just them, there's lots of, lots of people that have done that. It's, I find that just so generous of spirit yes. and, you know, sort of passing on that, that wisdom and knowledge. Just on Buffett, I had a, so in 19, um, and in care of State Superboard, I had an opportunity to go around, you know, looking at companies and other fund managers in, in the U.S., State Super had, a, had sort of external managers and so forth back in those days. So that yes. was you know, a really fabulous experience and some of my other employers, just wonderful exposure and education. But in the early 90s, I wrote to Charlie Munger, not Buffett. I thought I'll try uh, Chaka for a job. So I wrote, wrote <laughs> yeah. to him. Didn't get a response, which was a bit disappointing. But So I rang, rang them up or rang him up in Los Angeles and got through to his secretary or EA back then. And she said, oh, you know, we'll, we'll get back to you. The message I got back, well, there's no job, but he's happy to have breakfast with you at the Californian Club in LA. I said, oh, just I'll, that I'll do that. That is fantastic, So I had an hour and a half with Charlie just after they bought that big piece of Wells Fargo in the early 1990s. And it was just an amazing, amazing experience for a young fella to sit in front of, the, you know, such an incredible guy. I did the calc on his, I think he's 98. He was 62 at the time. Wow. He, said, he seemed really old. <laughs> I remember what? when I, you know, the French in age. Yeah. And so... One of the, the wisdom points, and so, you know, getting exposure to some of these people, you know, for me, it's just been gold. In, but what an opportunity. Yeah. Man. No, it was truly amazing. He said one thing that I really recall from the, the conversation I'd like to share, and it was, I was sort of sitting there thinking, I was a bit nervous and, you know, like we're chatting away and I'm thinking, you know, we're, we're kind of comrades here. <laughs> we're in the same business. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Brothers in arms. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, he said to me, uh, you know, what he asked me what I'd do and explain that to him. And he said, well, we're in completely different businesses, Peter. I thought, I wonder <laughs> what he meant by that. You know, like, and what, what he meant was that, as he explained, that, you know, he doesn't have anyone to answer to. It's a closed-end end fund, Berkshire Hathaway, and uh, I'm in a public, you know, I'm a public servant with stakeholders everywhere and, you know, money that can go, so to speak. So, you know, it was the first time I really kind of thought about that you know, proprietorial attribution that we talk about yes. in our investment style. Yes. It's very, very real. I went through a period, I mean, Buffett and Munger have become like rock stars on steroids, right? And so, you know, for the last 10 years, I sort of, you know, sort of keep an eye on what they say and stuff, but I haven't really been that interested in what they've been doing. I've been looking at other things. But 
I decided to, because um, one of the internal guys circulated it last week, the AGM. So on, on the weekend, I actually sat through the six-hour Q&A um, session of Buffett and Munger. Um, Buffett's, what is he, 90 and 98 for, uh, for Munger. And it's I, th- th- those guys, I'd recommend it to your listeners. Yes. You, the investment of the six hours is absolutely gold, and I'm, I'm so glad I did it. You know, they're sort of saying and espousing the same things, but they're so incredible because they've been able to – you know, adapt their, I guess, their philosophies and principles to contemporary problems, you know, inflation, crypto, you know, they've got a view on everything and they're very generous with their their opinions. So it's just a truly, truly magnificent experience to actually see two investors of that age still passionate, still hungry, it would seem, and, you know, dedicated to their cause. It's amazing how they've mastered the art of keeping things simple. Yeah. It seems to be a very powerful tool they use. Yeah, I agree. And I've never, I've never been able to achieve that level of purity that they have. And it's because of the environment. And so my expression of what you've just said then is, is basically integrity. Yes. And if you define integrity, the alignment, the key words, the alignment between kind of goals, philosophies and actions, that they're just so pure around that. You know, they, they think of things and then they do them. They're not beholden to I guess, other stakeholders in the way that, you know, many other people are. And Buffett talks a little bit about his choices. You know, he worked with other people and he explicitly talks about that choice and career path that he chose because he didn't want to be, you know, I guess, beholden to other people's opinions or or directions. So that meeting with Charlie, did that have a real impact on you in terms of, was that almost when the penny dropped to say, right, well, I know you went on to Merrill Lynch from there and BNP and Merrill Lynch, but is that when you started to get inklings around this proprietorship and where you ultimately wanted to end up? It was a bit like the slow learner uh, point that, <laughs> yeah, that right. I was trying to make before. Yeah. Absolutely. And I kind of, you know, having come from a small business background, you know, I had been thinking about, well, what would a startup investment management firm look like? And I work with David Paradise, who, who you may yes, know, back yes. in State Super Days. So Dave's gone on to bigger and better things and he and I partnered up for a few years. So, you know, we, we had a lot of conversations around what would that look like and what sort of partners would you, you know, want to go into business with? There were many opportunities, interesting, and one of the reasons it took to 2001 to uh, start up Cooper Investors was, you know, the, the sort of partnerships and the fear of, or, of risk, if you like, you know, school fees, mortgages, all those sort of things yes. kind of deferred and, and experience, you know, like I think everyone has different levels of, I guess, confidence around their abilities and experiences. And one thing I remember talking a lot about this with David was our kind of obsession around independence. And so a lot of opportunities to jump out as, you know, part of a bigger organisation and own 50% of it or partnering up with distribution companies that, you know, take out the fundraising yes, risk. Side of it. Um, we decided no to those many opportunities, not around economic reasons, but just this idea of, of independence. And so, you know, in 2001, sort of had enough, I guess, capital behind me to sort of prepay all the school fees and get on with it and take that, that and have risk. A, but have that, a go. That, yep. that sort of idea of capital, you know, in a proprietorial structure, in the case of Berkshire, that's a listed company in, in, in CI. It's a, you know, it's a company, private company. So has a lot of, I guess, levers for self-determination, which is a big focus around the strategy of the company. Yes. I like to say under any circumstances, you know, going back through 120 years of uh, financial history, I think Cooper Investors has a innate conservatism built into the, the organisation around, you know, people and finance and 
client expectations, et cetera. And, you know, the way we run the business is markets go up and down and we want to be here, you know, during the dark days as well as the good times. And, you know, the good thing about those dark days is that's when opportunities are at their greatest. And so we really think about that through the cycle mentality. That's really interesting. You did spend a fair bit of time with BMP and Merrill Lynch. In what are international institutions? How did that formulate? It's almost the reverse of the proprietorship model. Yep. And you're reporting through to international colleagues from Australia. How did you find that? And did that shape you as well? Oh, look, the experiences with these bigger organisations was just irreplaceable. And I'm so lucky, I feel, because you know, I went from the public sector into Bank National to Paris and it was kind of a, I was there for about three months. I think, oh my God, what, what have I done here? You know, yeah. I've got into it. At the time, BNP was a government-owned entity, right. French government-owned. Yes. It was a bank and it was French. And uh, in did terms you, of- Did you have to speak French? Interestingly, they had French classes and uh, I was a bit, bit, you know, got a bit, <laughs> bit focused on the stock picking, but I uh, didn't yeah. attend too many of those. But they had incredible culture. The The chairman was somebody from Paris and the chairman, well, also there didn't, didn't actually speak English. And so, you know, they had incredible French wines at lunch. They had really unusual culture. It was very bureaucratic. Right. And, um, you know, they'd fly everywhere around business class. And I said, I don't want to do business class. I'd, I just want a library. You know, I want to buy a few books. And I had to write requisitions back to Paris. And it was just a really... Yeah, highly bureaucratic organisation, but they had a lot of quirky investors um, and, and particularly gold investors, interestingly, you know, sitting in back offices in Paris. So once you got into the organisation and BNP also are the oldest foreign bank in Australia. They came to Australia in 1860, I think it was, as financiers to the, you know, the wool and agricultural trade. So it's a, it's a very, you know, rich legacy organisation and their banking clients are actually quite significant in, in so that that was a kind of an exposure that I hadn't had before. They also own 30% of a company called Newberger & Burnham, which is the Royd Newberger was the, the found New York broking firm that flipped themselves into asset management. Right. And so I had the opportunity to visit them. And Roy Newberger back then was kind of 94, 95, still coming into the office, deeply proprietorial, even though I think BNP owned 30% of them. So getting those sort of exposures, and I love to tell my colleagues that Roy wrote a book when he was 96, I think it was, and the title <laughs> of the book was So Far, So Good. So, um, and he'd passed away at 100, 110 oh, uh, what an f- a few years ago. So yeah. I like to tell everyone around work that uh, I've got long, long journeys in my, uh, <laughs> in my family tree. But out, out of BNP came down to Potter Warburg Asset Management, which was half-owned half by Mercury Asset Management, which is a big UK fund manager, and Mercury was a subsidiary of UBS. So the culture in Mercury was fantastic, had a very proprietorial feel to it. It was in the early days, you know, very investor-centric. Then they kind of brought in the McKinsey's team and turned it into a professional business and ultimately became an asset-gathering shop. But the exposure to the, and I like to say I've had the French, the English, and the American experience here, and they're quite different cultures. Yes. The culture in, in Mercury was just outstanding. They kind of have a real meritocracy approach. They had a, what they call a red brick university policy, you know, really employing smart people out of non-Oxford kind of uh, Oxford and Cambridge types, although there's there quite a few of those in there as well. But they, you know, the Barrow Boy concept, yes. and that really appealed to me because I sort of fancied I, I went to those sort of second-rate <laughs> universities as well. So, you know, that commitment to professionalism and, and really nitty-gritty approach was, you know, very influential. And they're very, very good on the business side. 
the, probably the best exposure I had in terms of managing a professional services side, you know, measure twice, cut once, yes. really strong rules of engagement around risk, compliance, you know, all that stuff that people don't talk about in investment management. It's so important. So important. Yes. And, you know, I saw some pretty wild things in my career in terms of, you know, people doing uh, not illegal, but just not sort of professional, yes. let's call it. Mercury were the ultimate in crossing T's and dotting I's. And so it was just, just really fantastic. And I really owe a guy called Morris O'Shaughnessy, who was the, the CEO of Mercury at the time, when he kind of tapped me on the shoulder to take over the Aussie equities. I was given retail fund, which was going out the back door at the time at Potter Warburg's. And, you know, they, they flew in a McKinsey's team from, from Europe to assess when they took 100% of Potter Warburg's to assess what they had there. And, you know, there's a lot of fear around closures and sackings and so forth. And, you know, everyone was very nervous. And, you know, they just methodically went through the business, the funds, the PMs, the managers, et cetera. And, you know, I was kind of lucky enough to get through the, um, I guess, the focusing that they did with the help of McKinsey's and Mark Morris O'Shaughnessy was the guy that, you know, I really owe a lot to in terms of giving me a bit of a break An in terms of, yep. you know, run, run this re- the retail part of the, the Potter Warburg business, which ultimately... I sort of took over the whole whole Aussie equities side of things. And then then we went to the roaring bull when when Merrill Lynch took over Mercury. So lots of us sort of had three three jobs with yes. three no, sorry, three different business cards, but the, the the same job, but completely different cultural experiences. The Roaring Bull, um, Merrill Lynch was was interesting and I think the Roaring Bull is the right sort of descriptor of the culture there because it was and and not bad for me, because the English culture could be summarized as Measure twice, cut once, iron fist, velvet gloves. So, you know, they're very yes. pleasant and very articulate in their deliberations and communications with employees. And then, then the chopper would come down, very <laughs> clinical decision makers, but very considered. Yes. Merrill's were kind of different in the sense that no, I'll never forget a conversation. I won't say the name of the guy, but he's the you know, Wall Street guys in charge of Asia Pacific asset management business. And came out and we had dinner, you know, the usual dinner with the, the big chief. It comes out and there's a few of us around the table and you know, it comes to me, Peter, so what, what, what's your ambition? <laughs> and I said to him, oh, I, you know, I hadn't thought about that. And, uh, you know, let's like to continue performing for the clients. And, and the money was, you know, the fund that I was running, you know, had been very successful and it blew up and then I took it over and it had three years of outflows. It was down at $150 million, right? Just unprofitable and Anyway, the, the writing looked like the, it might have been on the wall. It was a bit of a nervous time. And so, you know, we got the performance going and, you know, for three years, the money was still dripping out. And then on the third year, it you know, started to trickle in. And as you know, in the retail business, you know, that trickle turned into a couple hundred million bucks a month and it's just flying along. And I'm thinking, Jesus, you know, how, how do we actually invest this money coming through the door? And, you know, this guy's sort of asking me how, how what's my ambitions and so forth. So I just said, look, I'm you know, really keen to keep the performance going, look after the clients. And he said to me, quote unquote, never, never forget this, boy, you just need to lift the bar a bit. <laughs> and uh, at that point, I thought, you know, I had a few other exchanges with him, just incredibly aggressive yes. culture compared to the Merc. The, the English was, you know, assertive, but not disrespectful, if you like. So he just had a very caustic, toxic feel about him. So, but what was good about that for me, uh, I think, and this is a general description of, of Wall Street in a way. Just very ambitious, and if they believed in you, you know they just backed the truck up. And so their the strategy, I used to like to call it a crash or crash through. Right. And so you didn't kind of die wondering, whereas the, you know maybe the English, you know, they, they let the string out slowly. And so I, I feel I've had the I've had exposure to both. And yeah. there's 
you know, as the Buddhists like to say, there's the middle way and that, that's, you know, I'm Virgo, Tim, so I like to be balanced about things. Yes. I, I think there's a bit in that, having that, you know, you can, I think you need to be assertive and I think you need confidence in business for sure and, and investing, but you can have too much of it and you can have too little of it. So I think the game is really to calibrate and, you know, have, have a kind of equanimity about, you know, how to approach business and clients and in the topic of investing. So really, that exposure across those two formats really set me up, you know, in all sorts of ways, not just as an investor. I remember thinking on the technology side, you know, like I had 50 people I could tap into, you know, but they're in London and Princeton and then you got in a queue and the, the bureaucracy. So we've built a business where, you know, everyone sits within sort of 20 metres of where I sit and, you know, we try to keep it tight and yes. very direct and very focused in on our needs. And look, bureaucracy... You know, I've got to admit, you know, some days I wake up and think, geez, are we back at bureaucracy land again? So, you know, constant work at simplifying processes and businesses, never forgetting the reason that we're in business. You know, the name Cooper Investors, a lot to talk about the word investors. It's not asset management or investment management. And there's a guy called John Cloney, who used to, he's the CEO of QBE. I used to go and see John and got quite a good relationship with him. He said, Peter, how come you guys always call yourself asset managers? Yes. And back then, QBE was a big direct investor. They were in all sorts of, you know, big resource investors and they were quite somewhat curial and turned out to be a little bit cavalier in the end. Um, but they're a really closed-end investment shop back then and, you know, had a real passion for, you know, the investment topic. So that sort of idea of us being an investor shop is just so important and so you know, I just never want to, you can quickly lose sight of, well, why are we here? Yes. Well, it's just to invest. That's it. Not about asset gathering or, you know, all the other, other things that you get in, involved in. Now, risk is a huge part of investing. So, you know, we spend a lot of time on that. But, you know, in risk cultures, I would argue, you know, you need both process and you need qualitative genetic disposition to understanding and sniffing out where the risks are ex ante not just relying upon, you know, process box ticking and external consultants and so forth that so many companies seem to get tied up in. Yes. And I'm glad you expanded on why it was called Cooper Investors versus Cooper Asset Management or the like. It's um, because it does really put into perspective the sort of business that you're building or you've built. And I say building because I know Cooper Investors is, is ongoing, as I say, it's yep. got longevity. From a business sense though, and, and many of our listeners are, are business owners, what were the things that were important to you when striking that business? You had the benefit of these international firms from different regions. You had the benefit of a New South Wales state super in hindsight. And then you had all that accumulated understanding of small business and watching your parents work and grow. What was important to you when setting up CI or Cooper Investors, yep. you know, ownership, alignment? fee structure. And I think importantly, when you look at it now, Peter, in this world we live in today, how have you been able to ma manage to attract and maintain quality staff that are high performing? A couple of things were really, really important. Self-determination, number one, just having that sort of self-agency to determine one's future path. I love the conversation with Charlie Munger. That's, yes. that's been very, very, very strong. I think, you know, the ownership there's different ways to do that. You know, ownership, structure, company, strategy of not having outside sort of equity owners. Never say never, but the experiences I had, you know, so strongly burnt into my brain as to why I left 
Merrill's, those midnight phone calls to Princeton and, and London, you know, I just don't want to do that. I'll never forget in the, um, you know, in the tech wreck, we, we were going super well in Australia. You get the phone call, it's, you know, 30th of June bonus time and it's, look, Peter, we've, we've, we've got to share the pain. You know, this is the, the global network, you know, New York blowing yes. up and, you know, the bonus pool's out the window. And so we, we'd done really well and they were kind of cutting the, the bonus pool. And then the second call that came in was drop the, you know, the, the famous Jack Wells dropped the bottom 10% line. And I'd never actually heard of that line. So, well, what do you mean drop the bottom 10%? <laughs> oh, yeah, <you know, laughs> head count, drop, boy. Drop it. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's just ridiculous in an investment management business because it's a farming, you know, you want to plant the seeds in the, you know, when the opportunity's there and the down, that's when they're there in the downturns. You want to invest, yes. right? You want to be contrarian almost. And we, at CI, we are, you know, we hire people in downturns, you know, keep on investing through, through the cycle is a very strong business principle that we have. And so that independence and self-determination, you know, is very, very strong. And that allows you two things. One, it allows you to creatively sort of explore what you want to do and apply your skills in a way that you want to do it. And, and Brunswick Fund came out of that. Brunswick Fund is effectively, a not, it's benchmarked against the ASX 200 because that's where 75% of the capital's invested. But it's really a, a very unbenchmarked you know, non-index type of fund that was set up to kind of invest money the way that families and, and myself wanted to invest my family money. That's, that was the original kind of idea of it. But I didn't want it to be a hedge fund. I didn't want to do fancy, you know, fancy structures and so forth. So it's pretty, pretty basic structure we have there. Yes. We'll talk about it a bit later on. But, you know, it's simple, long duration. We didn't have any need to grow the fund. We've kind of slowly invested and in, in growing it. But you know, there's no kind of, you know, big strategy for asset gathering and so forth. So unlike the, the conversation with the fellow from Wall Street about, you know, ambitions and growing the revenue streams, yes, it's about getting investment returns. So that, that was very, very clear in my mind. And that's why, you know, having sort of outsiders as equity owners or being part of a distribution network is not, not that interesting to me. Yes. Because it, it compromises that, that sort of reason. On the people, yeah, you want to you want to work with people that you like. You know, we're a very you know we're performance driven. You know, there's people that have come and gone at, at CI. Of um, you know, really, really one of the, the things that I feel very good about is that I've remained professional friends and have very close relationships with many of the the ex employees of of CI. Some of them have gone on to bigger and better things. And I've invested in, you know, in, in their funds. And so, you know, I really like that I, you know, sort of a collaborative, slightly non-competitive approach in, in many respects, because I just don't see other people being the competition at all. The only competition that we have is our own abilities and our minds and our, I guess, our, our disciplines to be, uh, you know, able to stick to the, the philosophy of what we've got. Yes. That, that's, that's the competition in, in my mind. And so... Being able to work with people that I really enjoy working with and share, and there's lots of different different personalities at CI. I really enjoy watching some of the next. The thing that gives me most joy now is you know seeing the kind of next gen, the 30 to 45 year olds coming through now, and you know we've got some some fantastic talent. Retention, you know, is a really big issue, but I think that the culture of the organisation has been. You know, we, we pay well. I, uh, we don't have any leakage outside of the organisation, so we've got a lot of capacity to, you know, reward. We really try to align people to their success. Yes. Money is very important, 
for people, of course, and particularly in the investment game. But I think culture is equally important because, you know, you work, work long hours in, in this business and people want to be with other like-minded people that they get along with, um, explore opportunities together. You know, that creates a lot of, lot of joy and fun. Culture seems to come through most of the things I read with regards to Cooper Investors. I mean, whether it's on the analysis of a company, hubris, humility, we can get to that in a minute. But the things that you picked up early, like the propensity to read, the reading of books, I mean, there's so much available information online now. Is that a real theme within Cooper Investors? Is, is reading still as important as, as you found it when you were doing your, oh, I, your I, time? I think so. Some yeah. of these young, young guns are just incredible. They just yeah. leave, me, leave me in the dust. <laughs> <coughs> and we've got a, yeah, they're, you know, cu- cu- we've got sort of five different values and curiosity is, is one of them. We're a, it's not a top-down thing, Tim. It's kind of an osmosis culture in many yes. respects. And so people find their, you know, their levels, they find their kind of areas of, of passions and, and interest. But I would say it's very strong, the kind of appetite for learning and, and, and self-learning inside of CI. And the, it, it's driven by curiosity. Yes. And, you know, and opportunity, I guess, you know, like this sort of idea we've got the like to say the single single purpose when we get out of bed, what do we think about? It's what we call risk adjusted value latency, and the the word latency, you know, it's code for value, but risk adjusted value. Yes. And sort of you know finding in the public markets organisations, you know, that sort of share that that passion, and when you've pushed that, you know, from investment into the operational, you know, founders and innovators and so forth, there's just a poultice of people out there who are growing value and thinking about value in in all sorts of different ways. Some are innovators and growth orientated others of kind of vulture <laughs> vulture value acquirers if, if you like and so we love the idea and this is, this originally came from Peter Lynch's um, one up in Wall Street book where he talked about these different different subsets of value so we've adapted and and evolved that concept and I really love that idea of that getting um, access into opportunity but through multiple lenses is something that we're very keen on and then inside of CID, you know, there's kind of people with different expertises yes. around those. Some are a little bit more thirsty and hungry about the low-risk turnarounds and the, the asset plays and the cyclicals. Others are, you know, more interested in that sort of quality founder-type company. So, you know, there's some really good individual expertises inside of CI. We've got this kind of emergent opportunity in the endowment-style equity investing. And, you know, so we've got some guys, Ryan Reidler and, and Chris Dixon in there that are just, you know, really red hot on looking at uncorrelated sectors, clusters, stocks, and built and building through portfolio construction. So, you know, building that expertise, we kind of kicked that off, you know, one of the founding directors, Steve Thompson, you know, his original idea. Yes. And, you know, we've been wandering around some of the endowments in the US and, you know, really studying what they do at kind of guys like Dave Swenson at, at Yale was the father of endowment investing. We've sort of adapted some of their concepts, which are more, you know, multi-asset class investors, but we've applied that thinking to public equities and it just gets richer and richer in terms of opportunity to kind of blend securities together in endowment style investing. So there's all those type of innovations. And I think this new, we'll get to talk about stock markets in a a minute, I guess, but it's been a 30 year kind of era in a a way of falling interest rates, lower inflation and financialization of everything. I suspect we're, you know, entering a new era and we we think endowment investing is actually going to be one of the, you know, real, real covers, almost taking the clock back 50 years, isn't it? So exploiting that, you know, with our internal skill sets, something's really exciting. I think when we look at Cooper Investors and the way you've built your business, two things come out. The two pillars of money management, 
And I just want our listeners to understand your view on money management. And then we can go into what's going on in the world at the moment. Could you just explain that? And I think embracing the ideas of hubris to humility, yep. observations and predictions, patterns, just things like that, that probably explain to the finding the front listeners on what you're looking for, what you're looking to achieve and how you go about achieving it. Because I think it's really important. So in investment management, kind of a triangle, I guess, between you know, the culture, which informs behavior and the way you approach problem solving, the way you approach opportunity, the way you handle risk events and so forth. So that's one, one cornerstone to the way we, we think about it. And I'll come back to explaining what are the key drivers behind that. Then there is, well, how do you buy and sell stocks and what, what are you actually looking for? And so that's an investment philosophy we've got. And underneath that investment philosophy is VOF. So you know, if I give you the one, two, three of VOF, it's simply we look for one thing and it's risk adjusted. And it, the risk adjusted bit is value latency. People just talk about, you know, so we're looking for value, but it's got to be risk adjusted. There's two ways we go about looking and seeking for, you know, those opportunities and it's qualitative and quantitative. And the secret source at CI is the qualitative. Right. Okay. So I think we've built standardized formats around how to value companies, how to think about management. We have very detailed checklists around, you know, what are we actually looking for behind management industries, operating business models, and how to actually value a company. But a lot of that is, you know, you can read in valuation books, you can read in Michael Porter's strategy books. There's nothing particularly unique. I think the way we've standardized it and integrated those informations is very, very important. And whilst I wouldn't say it's a massive competitive advantage because lots of people can standardize and integrate. Yes. The actual discipline to do that, I think, has driven a lot of value at CI. And then, you know, the actual decision-making process, the portfolio construction, how we, how we do that is very much driven by these subsets of value. So getting diversity and looking for value in different places, not just growth companies. We've got stalwarts. We've got these reversionary opportunities, which I particularly like myself in terms of, you know, low-risk turnaround stocks. Investing in QBE after September 11, for example, is a good example of that. Investing in government entities, Commonwealth Bank going way back in time or Horizon more recently, governments getting rid of, rid of businesses. You know, it's a great area of opportunity. Spin-off divisions of, of companies we've made an art form out of. They're what I would call low-risk turnaround. So yes. the value is coming from just optimising, you know, what is a, a good, good business that's lost its way. That's different than... I guess, strategizing and winning market share and growing into new, new territories that are common with growth companies. And then we've got these kind of, you know, asset plays and endowment styled income stocks with long, long duration. And, you know, we've added, added recently describing that as, you know, companies that can recapture inflation, yes. you know, companies that have contracted pass-throughs, you know, so now we've got a list, list of those companies, companies where you know, they're not, their income streams are not sort of threatened by, by competition. You know, they might be contracted for 15 years or triple net leases. There's a whole bunch of securities that sit in this, what I'd call real assets, real income category, you know, these asset plays and bond-like equity companies. So they're a multitude of sources of value that we've standardized in the way we, we approach, you know, analyzing those companies. And by putting them together, you get, you know, these diversity, diverse portfolios that become very robust. I just want to emphasise when we analyse ourselves, we, we've analysed ourselves to death over yes. nearly 20 years now, 
you know, roughly one in three things we do are actually wrong, you know, destroy value relative to a, a benchmark. And so the trick in that standard, obviously you want to reduce that, but it's, it's really difficult, Tim. You know, I can tell you there's so much going on in the world that um, we just get stuff wrong. The, yeah. trick, the trick really is to identify mistakes and rectify them. So coming back to the, I guess, this culture of humility, which informs the investment philosophy, and it also informs the way we run our business. So, you know, it applies to all stakeholders, clients, employees, and companies that we like to invest in. And the culture of humility, uh, I, I want to emphasize, is not a biblical concept of meek and mildness. It's a, quite a fierce concept, humility. Yes. People, I think, really misinterpret humility as being meek and mild and deferent. It's definitely respectful, our definition of it, but it's really honesty with self, let alone other people. And that honesty of self comes out of self-awareness and, you know, self-agency and admitting, admitting one's, you know, mistakes and being open, open to information. And what makes this really tricky in the investment world is this paradox between flexibility and discipline. <laughs> and so, you know, you'll read in our literature, you know, the the kind of the creative, flexible mind is incredibly important because the world is constantly changing. Yes. But so is discipline. But the question that, um, you know, we don't really answer that well in the, in the literature, well, how do you know the difference between, you know, <laughs> right. when, to be, you know when to sell, when to hang on? Well, the old adage is it's easy to buy, it's hard to sell. Yeah. And I was actually, it did lead, it leads to the question, how do you know when to cut one loose? Yeah. I suppose we've all been in the situation where you've, You've got one wrong, but when do you let go? Well, I think that's where the humility, you know, intellectual humility is just so important because, you know, one has to get their mind, you know, in a complex world of what's actually a secular change versus a, you know, a short-term change. You know, what's the investment proposition? So, you know, for us, it all starts with the investment proposition around, you know, what's what's the value here? And so you kind of replay and our, our investment process, if you like, just all built about repetition. So we keep on going back and seeing companies time and time again, you know, a couple of times a year. We love to do the in-person thing. And it's all about, you know, really, yes, we do all this analytical work, but it's kind of watching, watching the behaviours and the responses and comparing and contrasting. I read you do something like 1,500 visits a year. Indeed. Okay, that's, that's across a phenomenal all, amount. all portfolio managers, 20 people in the, in the investment department. So it's a huge amount. We concentrate those visits down to roughly 400 companies across the world that we've formally put on watch lists in terms of companies that we want to build relationships. And, you know, out of the, those 400 companies, you know, we're doing these 1,500 company visits a year, but a lot of it is repetition, like going back and yes. talking to them, what's different, what's permanent damage, what's, what's just a short-term blip. I think that what we're looking for in the risk adjustment process and our decision-making is very much driven around these risk, risk factors. So in that VOF, you know, there's value, which is a quantitative process. The qualitative process is driven off these 1,500 company visits and contacts and it was not so much one-on-ones in the last two years, but certainly had the Zoom equivalent. Yes. That qualitative assessment of the value, and for your listeners, I, I think about values, it's, it's really just three lines, even though we've got these thousand-line models. It's just sales, margins, and returns. And that's it, you know, in terms of what drives the, you know, cash flows in a business. The qualitative work we're doing is really looking at the, I guess, is that skew left or skew right? Is it sustainable or sort of a five-year pathway or, a, you know, a one-year pathway. Yes. So that qualitative, we're thinking about, you know, numbers in terms of 
outcomes and how you know how they I guess the the current stock price is inferring in terms of values that stock price reflecting all of that sort of growth that we we see or is it not reflecting it at all or somewhere in between you know just to give you a sort of practical example in in the US you know margins are at world record highs you know when I started in business margins in the US were around that five percent level as net profit to sales margins yes you know today they're twelve and a half percent never been higher now, the composition of the economy is very different, so there's a lot of nuances and doing comparisons with, with yesteryear, but you know, that's, a, that's to be watched because world record margins, rising inflation, interest rates, you know, what does that mean going forward? So that qualitative assessment, we do business by business and then do compare and contrast, so ultimately we just want the best, you know, the best risk-adjusted returns, so we can sell a good stock for a better stock. Yes. So they're the, I mean, that's a sort of a, I guess, a brief summary. I guess the culture of the organisation, you know, is really built around, you know, this idea of um, humans have a propensity of uh, what we call a hubris, the humility cycle, and stock markets do as well, industries do, football sides do. And you see, see this pattern in all sorts of, you know, human organisations. And, you know, what we're looking for, one of our, one of those risk attributes is what we call focus managed behaviour. Yes, we want focus, but it's behaviour, the word that I'd really zero in on. Yes. Are they focused in the key drivers or, or value? A lot of these companies out there, you know, they're pulling all, you know, profits going up, but they're pulling levers less than conservative way, you know, putting up prices, channel stuffing, leveraging, doing unnecessary buybacks in terms of leveraging the company up just to get EPS. And there's a very famous I was in uh, Washington on, on the day that Fannie Mae sort of put the white flag up. Fannie Mae's the right, yeah, mortgage yeah. So I was actually had a visit with the CFO. I went to their offices and they said, no, oh, he can't see you. He's, got, he's busy. <laughs> um, but those, th- those guys, semi-extension of government, paying themselves $50 million bonuses, but there was leverage, you know, if you included all the option contracts, like 150 to one. And Goodness. so you can really move the dial just through leverage. So, you know, we do a lot of work to sort of look, at, look through, you know, those sort of shorter-term thinkers. That's what, what we like to invest in is companies coming, you know, coming off the bottom, conservative opportunity sets, balance sheets that are latent with the ability to buy back cheap stock if, if they can. One of the sectors that we love, we call them capital allocated champions. They're like listed proprietorial or private equity firms with, with one big difference. They're very lowly leveraged. And they have deep vertical industry knowledge. And so in these downturns, they're just fantastic. You know, they just hoover up all the competitors who, who fall by the wayside. So they're, they're the sort of companies that we're looking for, these proprietorial people that get to eat their own cooking but because they're owners, yes. not, not agents. No. So I think that, that sort of hubris to humility thing has been very strong in our investment culture. It's come out of, you know, going way back to my state super days. I was reminded of, you know, the QV... QV building here, QVC, yes, yes. State Super New South Wales was the developer of that. And there's a put, they, you know, the geniuses back then, the public sectors, there's a couple of put options and that was one of them. And so right at the bottom of the, or sort of right in the crisis, State Super Board's getting put, these massive empty buildings. Oh my <laughs> and, um, you know, the hubris in, that I saw in the property market in the late 1980s was just incredible. And so seeing, seeing those sort of cycles when money and, and this is what's very interesting about the current conditions, when money is short or liquidity is not available, I mean, there's just no bottom. You know, like there's kind of no buyers, and if you have four sellers, there's just incredible opportunities that come about. Now, you know, the the world of free money and you know MMT, you know, the magic pudding of MMT, 
modern money theory and, you know, New York bestsellers everywhere a couple of years ago about, you know, government debt doesn't matter and printing money is a good thing and all, all of this. I, I get the crisis need and all of that, but that's really under a lot of pressure now. And so, you know, bringing some normalcy back to risk and with, you know, obligations, there's the responsibility of paying things back and, and all of that sort of idea, I feel, will come back into play. And I'll put that into the context of this hubris to humility cycle that we see. Gosh, it's, it, well, when you look at it in that light, there's plenty we could go on with there in terms of the current market. I will come to that. When you look at the where you've invested, Peter, both Australia or locally and globally, have you found it more difficult to invest globally than locally because of location? I know in this yeah. world we've got technology coming out our ears, we've got availability and information is everywhere, but has it still made a difference? Well, our journey on, on this question when we headed off 15 years ago, people would rightly say, by the way, well, you've never invested overseas, e- even though we've been tracking Australian companies and visiting competitors overseas very aggressively for all, all of my career. So it's not 100% true that we don't have international experience. But in terms of you know running portfolios, it was true 15 years ago. And my response to that was, I don't know, come back in 10 years time and I'll yeah. let you know how it goes. <laughs> so I think there's a couple of takeouts. There's no question it's different. You know, we've got a, our offices are in Collins Street, Melbourne. Um, we've positioned ourselves between 120 Collins and 101 Collins when all the managers come down from Sydney and Brisbane and, and Perth. We're just seeing the big brokers. We just hook them in and have a bit of a chat to them and stuff. So, it, it, you know, it's very local and we get on planes and fly around Australia. So that logistical advantage, if you like, of being local is clearly different than getting on a plane and going, going to New York or going to the US. So we've had to adapt that model and so what we've done is reduce the number of companies that we track internationally, even though we're, we're global, we're tracking a relatively small watch list of companies in North America, Europe and Asia to accommodate the logistical point in addition to the technology. I'm talking about this is one-on-one visits, right? Yes. Secondly, we've really championed the idea with great success that we actually want to go and see companies in their offices. So you know, in the last month, for example, we've come out of the gates very hard. You know, we've been to India, North America, Canada, Europe, UK, going to Japan in two weeks' time, three weeks' time. Not me, but other team members. Yes. I've actually been in the US for a couple of months over the last six months. So we're just very wide for international travel. We've done that by building focused teams around these clusters. And many comments as where the first person you know, in, in the UK and, and Europe and, and US that they've seen from overseas. And so we love, love hearing that, that feedback. The networks the guys have built are just incredible and really have surprised us in terms of our access into these incredible companies. They're not in the mega, they're not the Googles and Microsofts, but we're talking, you know, 10 to $50 billion type companies. And so I would say international is definitely harder. The learnings have been great. We've dealt with that through, you know, through what I'd call network building. This is my favourite story. Um, Alan Goldstein uh, invested in this company 12 years ago called Danaher. Right. It was a mid-cap then. It's, you know, about $150 billion market cap now. But we've made money five ways out of Danaher. Firstly, the stock's been an incredible success story. Secondly, they've exported a couple of founders called the Rail Brothers, set this incredible manufacturing, high-quality manufacturing culture and business and global company now. And so we've followed, they've exported CEOs everywhere, you know, like so people left Danaher to go to yes. another Fortune 500 company. I mean, some of those instances, we've followed those, those managers. 
and the playbook is exactly the same. You turn up, you know, how are you going, Joe? And it's, oh, we've heard this one before. And because we're so confident in that culture and approach, it just gives us a pattern, if you like, to assess. Um, secondly, they're very strong at shedding divisions. When they get to, you know, a size, they spin them off. And some of these have been, been very good opportunities for us because, once again, we know the culture. They just put a little bit more focus around it. Thirdly, they've been very generous at answering one of our favourite questions of, you know, got any good competitors in, in this product or, yes. or division? So they've kind of led us to a couple of smaller opportunities. And then after uh, about five or six years, Chris Dixon, who runs the European side of our global fund, said, well, have we got any equivalents in, in Europe? And so that question <laughs> kind of led us to some incredible, not, not exactly the same as Helmer, but similar culture and similar approaches, if you like, to this capital allocation question. So the that um, circle, if you like, of opportunity that's come um, and the one piece of advice we give to ourselves, every time we go small, uh, restrict the circle of interest around these quality companies internationally, the better we go. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've kind of, I, mean, I think we're still on that journey. Uh, you know, we still haven't quite of, you know, exploited fully the opportunity of, of keep, keeping ourselves focused. Um, the other thing to say about international investing, I, I do think is true, is, um, yeah, the it's, it's just more complicated. You know, there's more countries, there's more regulators, there's more, um, I guess, um, kind of um, industry industry competition that you, you you may not see as easily as you do do in Australia. Um, but what one thing in terms of our, I guess, investment philosophy it's transcended and you know been able to be transferred into other other topics and jurisdictions i think the philosophy um is incredibly interesting because i even like to say you can actually apply this philosophy to fund managers you know the some of the things i talk about this yes. you see yes. this in in fund managers um you know i like to say whenever you know we've been through you know significant i speak personally over my investing career there's been a couple of occasions you know gone through some really bad underperformance which are related to the investment philosophy but only a couple that the that the, the kind of underperformance you know when you kind of err and forget and you know it's you know we're not we're not perfect we do have our you know good quarters and bad quarters yes t- type of thing so you know and that gets back to the this culture and mindset um you know being present and being you know really focused you know applying you know the metrics we like to apply to others turn those on ourselves around you know focused behavior is incredibly important and so you know taking that that philosophy and applying it into the international markets has been a joy and i feel you know we're 15 16 years into it and we're we're kind of better we're better networked and better I guess resourced and and sort of much more clearer around where we see see those value opportunities than we've ever been. Oh, that's great insight. Thanks, thanks for that. I think it's a great way when you look at that to then segue into the markets as such. Now that we've we've sort of covered off on Cooper Investors and the way it's evolved, um, and now where you've talked about the global strategies and and also then locally and the differences. But when we look now. We're in a, an interesting situation where we have, we've seen in more recent times, markets have started to take a bit of a turn and you've alluded to that rising interest rate environment, rising inflation environment, supply chains being restricted. Can you give us a little bit of an insight? And I think this is where a lot of the listeners would be really just so happy to be able to 
get some of your insights into what you've seen in the past in terms and how you can relate that to what's happening now. And, and I, I've, I say that in light, you've experienced some pretty major crashes. Violent, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like 1987, the bond crisis in the mid-90s, the Asian crisis in 97, the tech bust in 2000, the GFC in 08, and then more recently COVID-19 and the, and the downturn we had through there. It's a big question as to what's going to happen next. And I think there's a lot wrestling with the idea of is there going to be a soft landing or is there going to be an absolute uh, demand destruction mm. because of higher interest rates and high inflation and this supply chain constriction. So, Peter, without having to go into war and peace about it, what, what do you think might be sort of something that we could hang our hats on as investors? Um. Tim, I think um, one of the the underpinning tenets of the investment philosophy is observation, not not prediction. So, yes. um, which is an incredible concept, by the way. It's a quantum physics concept, and you know what's the difference between observation and prediction is a philosophical discussion we can have some other day. But um, it's it's very very powerful. So, I think uh, the way I think about it is kind of, I guess, financial history, um, and you know, my, my own history from, from 1987. The financial history, you know, going back, let's say, 100, 120 years since, you know, stats were were uh, collected on, you know, inflation and returns and so forth is uh, quite quite interesting to delve, delve into and in rough, rough terms, don't hold me to the exact numbers here, but, you know, inflation rates of zero to two are, you know, very good for equity markets, on average, two to four is actually not a problem, you know, a little bit lower. And I'm talking in terms of real equity returns here. Yes. In real terms after inflation adjustments. And, you know, yeah, two to four is fine, a little bit less than zero to two. After 4% inflation, you start to get real um, degradation of, of equity returns. And I'm talking over rolling, you know, three, five, ten-year periods. Uh, but lower, you know, you really notice the drop off in real returns coming out of equities, and obviously, you know, devastating for bonds. Um, at at seven percent, and it seems to be a sort of a bit of a threshold number seven. Yes. You know, it's it's really bad. That's when you go into you know real negative return um, territory. And um, there's only there's only been one decade in in 120 years where that's happened. It was the 19, 1970s. In, in real in, in real return, um, so that the kind of the numbers are quite small, which makes the analysis you know a little bit sketchy, if you like. That you know the the observations over you know five and ten year periods, I'm looking at. So today, you know we're at, we're above that seven percent um, around the world. Um, you know in in terms of underlying inflation numbers, which is a concept I'm not too too keen on, you know, underlining meaning excluding energy, excluding food. So, you know, you don't eat, you can't turn the lights on. Um, I don't know that world, neither do you. So, um, but, you know, like in in the attempt to look at, well, what what is the underlying rates of inflation? It looks like that's about 6% in the United States and about half that in in, in Europe. And I actually don't know the, the exact number in Australia, but I think the underlying, you know, if you looked at underlying wages growth, you know, it's in that three to four percent um, category. Um, so, if you want to sort of zero in on the underlying, and this is, you know, 
you know, I'm not. This is not my opinion. This is just an observation. You know, the 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 you know the the promising outlook would be that you kind of get inflation settling down into that you know three four five percent area, which um, you know wouldn't be great for for equity markets, but it's not a not a disaster. Um, you know, the concern big time is well, we're actually above seven and. You know, what if that goes on much longer and you do get the the demand destruction? You know, I'm going to pause after my next comment because, you know, this macroeconomic stuff is just not something that we sort of spend a lot of time on. Mm. Rather come back and talk about what sort of companies can actually get through this and turn, you know, adversity into opportunity. The concern, I guess, is, well, how do governments actually fight inflation? Because with the amount of debt around just looks really tricky and, you know, we've had such a long time and this is the challenge for people, myself included, the ability for governments to up the ante on, you know, both fiscal and monetary policy has been pretty consistent, you know, and this is the every time, you know, buy the dips mentality yes. has been reinforced. Well, what, what if there's no levers to pull anymore is, is kind of the concern. So I think it's going to, you know, it's a challenging time. You know, I think we're very focused in on Inflation, there's no debate about inflation. It, it, it exists and it's very strong. And so, you know, finding businesses with pass-through contractual, you know, revenue streams, finding businesses that can actually reprice their businesses in lifetime and, and really deal with that. And so there's lots of examples of that. And then there's lots of examples of, you know, margin, margin destruction. Interestingly, looking at this comparison, you know, in, in the US, you know, margins are all-time record highs. In Asia, there's been just, you know, across the big cap, sector has been like massive downgrades around operating margins in businesses down 10, 20, 30%. So they've kind of absorbed a lot of the supply chain and, and then specifically companies, international companies with uh, exposure to China and supply chain sourcing have also had, had some sort of margin destruction. Yes. And one of the reasons in the US is just that high propensity or high uh, change in industry structure around technology, you know, high margin businesses, they're able to, very adaptive businesses as well, those technology platforms, the bigger profitable ones yes. have been incredibly adaptive because they don't have, you know, they're technology companies, they're, you know, zeros and ones, um, you can manage the uh, inventory much more easily in that sort of business. So I think, you know, in terms of long, long-term history, Australia's been generating around 6% real returns for 120 years, probably one of the better markets in the world. Uh, US a little bit, little bit less than that. In, in my career, you know, each of these, I've had three big, big downturns, the 87, GFC, COVID, call them the 40% corrections. Yes. And they, at the time, they're, you know, they're really, even for well-positioned fund managers, it, it's difficult. And I think this idea of durability of portfolios and business is incredibly important because to actually prosper and one bit of me is excited by downturns, you know, like that's that's when you start to see real value and we're, we're seeing a few examples. An opportunity. Yeah, yeah wouldn't, wouldn't want to rush too hard into it because, you know, it's early days, but, you know, there's some stocks down a long way, you know, lots down 50%. I think half of the NASDAQ's down 50%, 20% of the NASDAQ's down 70% of, of, by number. Yes. The overall NASDAQ's only down, I think, 25% because of those big, big successful platform companies. So I think the strong get stronger in industry. That's very much about sustainability and durability of balance sheets and managers who know what to do, managers who know what real value is in their industry. So having, you know, management with deep industry expertise. I think 
drawing upon the idea of diversity is incredibly important because myself included is you could say, well, you know, this is a very special time in history that we haven't actually, or I haven't actually lived before because since I've started work in 1987, I was a bank analyst at State Superboard New South Wales and I'll never forget the day I read a white paper and only if I had been a bit smarter to interpret the second and third derivative of what I'm about to say. The white paper was on risk-weighted assets, a concept dreamt up in Baal, Switzerland, applied to banks around the world. And it basically said, well, we're now going to risk-weight assets and certain assets will have half the capital in case of home mortgages will have half the capital they needed yesterday. That was overnight. And then they took that 50% weighting in the case of Westpac and CBA down to like 12% or something, which just meant that you could leverage the balance sheets by, you know, five and six times more than what you could under the old capital adequacy laws. Yes. And it was just profound, Tim, and it relates back to somebody who I haven't really followed very closely, but it had a really big impact upon my thinking in 1987 when I read The Alchemy of Finance by George Soros. And he talks about effectively pyramiding or the the virtuous cycle and the vicious cycle. And so the virtuous cycle of you get some equity, you put it into real estate, the asset price goes up, you've doubled your equity with a 20% change in the asset price, you then go and buy more assets. Yes. When you do that across economies, it's a self-sustaining, fulfilling prophecy where, you know, the buyers, they make more money, they invest more, therefore the, the asset class goes up, therefore everyone's richer and so on and so forth until the elastic band can't be stretched any further and then you get the, Contraction. You know, the, the vicious, vicious cycle down. So that concept is a hubris to humility concept. And, you know, we've had so many expansions in the world, the latest one being ETFs, superannuation, the banking sector, as I mentioned, the prevalence of, of hedge funds and private equity, borrowing cheap money, and, and there's a lot of excellent ones, by the way, but not, sorry, there's lots, but not many in proportion to the total industry. It's like any industry, there's some outstanding players in that space. But the idea of leverage and ex, you know, expansion has just been such a big factor in finance. You know, we've invested in quite a lot of the stock exchanges and so forth. You know, like the ability of financial technology to keep on innovating new products, I believe will continue to go on, but it just feels to me as a very significant time in history where there's been so much of it. There's more so fun. Many released. I mean, my favourite one is more fund managers than stocks you can invest in in Australia, and you can multiply that by hundreds around around the world. How, <laughs> how does that exist? <laughs> so, you know, proliferation and financialization has been very, very significant, and I think we we will go through some, I guess, contractions. I think this downturn is actually good. It, it's bringing risk risk culture back into people's thinking. There's a lot of businesses out there that. I'm not quite sure about and, you know, a bit out of my league here, but the VC industry seems to me very fueled by cheap money and customer rank. You just have an idea and yeah, I'm all for innovation, raise a stack of money and just go after customer acquisition without any profitability. And you've seen what's happened to Netflix recently, down yes. 70 odd percent. And, you know, it's a really interesting model, but there's competition everywhere now. And so profit does matter. And so I think for incumbents in the space that we're investing in, you know, deep domain expertise, you know, really competent, good balance sheets, companies are going to get stronger. So, you know, that, that's something to be 
looking forward to. I think the other good news for those who are cashed up, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, is, is the absolute, you know, anyone who's been conservative and had, you know, all term deposits and, you know, retirees and stuff, I mean, they've just been shafted for the last 10 years. They're finally going to get a return uh, on Finally, the, you know, you can get, you know, 2 or 3% out of these, yes. you know, low-risk assets and, you know, maybe it gets up to 4 or 5 and so you'll have a whole section of community and that one was getting around endowment and all the way into equity-type stocks. There'll be, you know, re, re, um, it's always good to be reminded if you look at the long-term history, dividends have produced, you know, roughly 50, depending upon which market you're looking at, but say around 50% of the total return, of the real return, dividends. And capital growth's only been, you know, 3%, real. It's enormous. So it's something to really be mindful of. You know, we, we would expect there to be some, some real opportunities in that space. Peter, I'm mindful of time. That was just such a great insight. I have some rapid fire questions I'd just like to throw past you. We can start with international issues such as the, the Russian and Ukraine conflict. How do you think that might evolve? Well, what was like this, you know, relatively small data points impact markets between 50 and sort of 200 days. If you look at, you know, Iraq wars and th- this feels a little, little bit more uh, significant to me, but, you know, it'll, depending upon what, what happens here and, and obviously, you know, any escalation beyond what we're seeing and the tragedy, I might say, and, you know, I've got some insight into that, that tragedy at a personal level. So the knock-on consequences, you know, very evident in terms of reshaping people's activities in the energy sector, defence spending, you know, Germany spends, you know, one and a half percent of GDP on defence spending, US is close to 4%. Donald Trump pointed that out to people and uh, had some impact, I guess. But it's re- I think that, you know, if there's anything good that comes out of this would be just the awareness that national sovereignty and security is not a, not a gimme and, you know, should be a message to Australians as well in the long, long run. So you're seeing lots of responses around you know, national security and, and defence. And so on the energy side, you're just going to get acceleration in terms of not, in addition to energy transition concepts, you know, in Europe particularly, wanting multiple sources of supply of energy and certainly, you know, Germany's, you know, with their, you know, 80% reliance upon Russian gas is just seems so anomalous and ridiculous in terms of their strategic planning. So that's going to drive a lot of, you know, even more investment into this this energy transition, you know, solar you know, wind, of course, hydrogen, it's getting a lot, yes. you know, ter- terminal investment, you know, to be able to accept, you know, C-bound LNG gas and then revisiting, you know, other, other there's, you know, I, th- I think I read the other day, you know, Germany's even firing up a coal-fired uh, power station. So, you know, there'll be a, a kind of an extension of some of those sunset supplies in the you know, traditional all-gas coal. Yes. Um, I believe, you know, you could sort of extend whatever you're assuming in terms of those sunset industries, there'll be kind of quite deep, deep cash flows embedded in those um, already sunk capital. It's kind of an interesting concept. So in terms of investing, you know, we've taken a bit of a barbell approach, you know, so we're investing in the new new transition, some really, and Australia's actually got, and New Zealand particularly, outstanding, you know, wind generation technology and operatorship and been doing it in New Zealand, they've been doing it, you know, way before the uh, the climate change topic, they've been doing it for 50, 50 plus years there. So there's a lot of, you know, really good expertise in Australasia around these um, alternative energy energy sources. And then and then investing in more traditional supplies of energy. I think that's, you know, that's a that's the approach we've taken and it really yes. sits nicely with multiple sources and everyone's a winner. Yeah, so, but, you know, Ukraine, it's, a, it's you know, obviously very concerning and it has, it's also exposed geopolitical alignments. You know, there's a lot of the 
you could see in the UN vote of no confidence against Russia, those who abstained and those who voted for Russia, I think there's only one or two, but um, mm. they're all conflicted parties, if you like. But the abstainers are very, very interesting. For example, India has, and the reason I think is um, India's been a, you know, had a strong relationship with Russia in terms of education and uh, military supply. Yes. And I- India, you know, is a fantastic opportunity for India, for Australians investing in India and, and the world in some respects is the largest democracy in the world. But they're in a slightly tricky position. You've got China backing Pakistan with nuclear. You've got to the, to the south, Sri Lanka, indebted, bankrupt Sri Lanka. Chinese have been huge investors. I'm pretty sure they own, along with Darwin, Darwin Port, Port of, of Sri Lanka, so very influential in that, that jurisdiction. And so I think India, you know, is in a, in a tricky geopolitical stance and not wanting to have enemies on all boundaries. So they've, they've been quite silent, if you like, around the Ukrainian. But there's a lot of galvanised, you know, focus now in, in Europe. So we'll wait and see. Thanks for that answer. You touched on it, China. We sort of touched on China in terms of the challenges with China, but where do you see that evolving as well? You know, it's never good to have a dispute with your biggest customer in business. And no. it seems to me that we're in somewhat of political conflict with our, our biggest export market. You know, the kind of the, the Chinese century and the march, the march towards full recognition has really, really got a head of steam now politically in in China under Xi Jinping and they're kind of more explicit in exerting their presence around around the world including our neighbourhood and so forth. You know I think my hope and it it is hope it's not really an informed decision my hope is that China leadership have been incredibly successful at navigating banking crises um, all, all sorts of I guess developmental issues over the last 30 years so you know the success in building industry and economic wealth has been very, very applaudable. And one would hope that they also see the risks of, of being alone and isolated. And I think perhaps the Russian, they've also been pretty clever at not going too hard in their alignment, clear alignment with Russia. So, you know, they, they also have a lot at stake here, you know, around global demand destruction and contraction, big yes, time. Yes. So one would hope there's some sensibility that their role in the world is is undeniable in terms of size and population and GDP. They're already the biggest economy on a purchasing parity basis and will go past US, you know, in the next 10 years on a real real economic size basis. Their military is definitely matching US fleet size. You know, if you look at the numbers and frankly, probably in some areas better because it's later, later technology. So I think their influence is going to continue. You'd hope that it's bounded with sensibilities and you know, that ec- economic realities also become evident to the leadership of China. We've got an upcoming federal election, and I know that the, the impact of government has a role to play. In brief? It's a tough two-horse race, Tim, and um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, you know, every time I come back from overseas, I sort of ask myself the question, you know, like, it's such a, you know, I mean, first time in Perth in three years, you know, the, the weather here is outstanding. We're staying in in discount half-price Hilton Hotel opposite the Ritz there, looking up the Swan River. It is absolutely magnificent, and I'm not just saying that. It's the quality of life. Um, I come back through um, Good on you, Ma- Peter. Mel- Melbourne Airport. You know, it works, and their friend- friendly customers officer, you know, gives me the, the pass-through every time. Um, and I do wonder, you know, how come we, we, we've kind of managed to get here? Because when you look out the window at these politicians, it's, it really is despair city across the board. So what we do is draw a line down the middle of the page and um, I think the 
influence of state capitalism and and governments around the world, including Australia, is been getting bigger for 50 years and continues on, right? And um, in my view, you know, it's gone way past sensibility in terms of the amount of kind of influence and direction one, one needs to be in business and getting from government. But we rule a line down the middle of the page and say, who's a winner, who's a loser, and who does the government actually need? Because they're you know, the hubris, the humility cycle applies to government thinking and politicians. And yes. so when they go too hard in certain areas, you'll, you'll see their, their behaviours and their kind of their minders and PR machines back off around regulation and interference. And so, you know, I think around infrastructure and delivery around services in healthcare, you know, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure they won't mind me saying this, but the, you know, the biggest government arbitrage would have to be Macquarie Bank. It doesn't matter what, which government, they just seem to be able to, you know, come up with business models <laughs> that, you know, we love, love Macquarie, they're a great, great company. But companies that are adaptable and have, have things that governments need and want. And I think relationships is very important. So, you know, you know with customers and, and government is, is very, very key. And, you know, companies that can navigate that landscape. So companies like BHP are, in, you know, the world's large here in Melbourne, in Melbourne, they're, you know, just an incredible company around yes. uh, all sorts of issues, not just, you know, digging dirt out of the ground, but, you know, around community and efficiency, around the, you know, the new economy. You know, BHP is very exposed to, you know, materials that need to go into all these new EVs and, and, and new technologies and so forth. So, you know, there, there are those sort of companies. Lend-Lease, just to mention one company, you know, one of the most advanced companies in the world around demography and efficient, affordable housing. They run 40,000, people wouldn't know this mostly, that, that they run 40,000 homes for the US military. Lend-Lease, you know, urban renewal, that the intelligence inside that company is incredible. That, they struggle a little bit about the monetization of that that IP, but they're they're a sort of company that governments will definitely need. Yes, to to you know recalibrate these social agendas on either party. You know tra- transition technologies. I'll, I'll give you another one liner. Um, you know you, you start closing down Origin and and uh, AGL biggest sort of coal pumpers in in this country. You start closing those those coal-fired power stations. You know what what's going to happen? Well, energy prices are going to go up. Right, so that's a, a win. You close them, and the energy prices go up. What what if governments say, well, you know, what if we turn all this energy off too quickly? Reliability and sustainability of of industry, and they decide, you know, well, we just need to transition this a little bit longer. You push those out in time. Well, they've got sunk assets with longer income streams. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a win win backdrop in in my mind around those those sort of government risk areas. Yes. You know, we've got investments in, you know, affordable housing that they tend to be retirement orientated and depends upon the model, but there's some, you know, lifestyle communities. I mean, the government should just tell them to go and, you know, sort out the affordable housing problem. They, you know, they build houses um, and I've been through them in, in Melbourne, you know, 150 grand costs and they're manufactured homes, right? Yes. But they're, they're fantastic. I'd, I'd live, easily live in one cheap and affordable and then better still they build communities around that concept so there's you know some really good innovation that can solve you know all these some of these the issues. global problems and yes. as a you know as an investor i think you know a lot of people talk about esg and responsibility i mean it's really about you know business innovation and coming up with ideas to solve problems that that's where the opportunity is and so there's yeah there's lots of problems in the world but you know there's lots of opportunities to solve those problems australian dollar well, it should be going up. <laughs> well, it's going down. It's going to make us, I think, under 70 cents today, Tim. It's going to make super competitive, great for tourism, great for exporters. 
bit expensive to take that uh, European holiday. So I, I think it's a little bit dependent upon the bit of catch up from our central bank. We're sort of tracking a little bit behind the US curve here. So that's why it's been been weak. But it looks pretty good value under 70 cents to me. Oil? Uh, stronger for longer would be my short answer for the reasons I said before. Yeah, sure. There's a you know, diversity, risk diversity that's going to hold, hold that energy source in place longer than we we're expecting. Gold. I used to say you can't eat it, doesn't pay dividends, not interested. <laughs> um, but I think we've had our – we like investing in gold royalty companies. They just take the dividend and don't have to worry about the mines and all the hard work that goes into actually digging it out of ground. There's one called Franco Nevada that we've got a bit of exposure to in the global funds. But um, – I'm surprised it's not higher, actually, and that was explained a little bit by the three trillion dollars that rolled into cryptocurrency in the last couple of years. Yes, but you know, gold hasn't sort of gone up as crypto's gone down, which I, I found a little bit surprising. So I think there's a place for it, and and I, so unquestionably there's a place for it, like you know, a store of long-term wealth. But um, you know, our our sort of thinking would would rather be in more productive, diversified sources. You know, a port that exports agriculture would be our equivalent of a kind of a gold stock, yeah. if you like. Okay. Yes. But I think that concept of reserve currency and, and fiat money. Um, Morris O'Shaughnessy, the guy I referred to in Friends, writ, written uh, unpublished yet a book, a thousand page book on the history of money, and um, his lines you know, to me is there's no example in history where fiat money of the, this disproportion that we've seen has has survived and uh, not ended in in a gold boom. So uh, yeah, I think there's there's a place for it. The new economy, B2B, B2C, data, AI. Oh, massive. Massive? Massive fan. And um, we're at the, you know, the conservative end. So, you know, I watch Kathy Wood, our capital. Um, we're, we're not in that. So interested in that sort of frontier innovation that's not where we're invested. But in terms of transformation, I was in Tulum, having a honeymoon in Tulum, Mexico recently, which is a bit of a wild, wild wow. place. yeah. But, you know, bar- barley of, of South America, you could, could describe it as. But it's, you know, the prices there are just off the dial expensive and it's because of all these tech natives from around the world and their <laughs> $500,000 million a year jobs, you know, punching out code from, from Tulum, Mexico. And so, yeah, I think... And one of the interesting things about the COVID downturn, you know, no one wants to come back to work doing three, four-day-week jobs. The public sector hasn't been at work for two years and no, no one's noticed. So if you can work from home, you can work from the Philippines or from India or, you know, Ukraine. You have a choice. Um, until recently. Yes. So, you know, I think the, I guess, the proliferation of services and IT and data and, and new business models, you know, we've been through this incredible some, somewhat of a bubble, I guess, but I just see it as a kind of an investment in, in new innovation and, you know, I think that's going to be ongoing. The last couple, uh, you alluded to it earlier, but Bitcoin? I think, I think the underlying technology is, is where the, the, the real story is. The problem I've always had with Bitcoin, like I'm a, you know, I'm a classical liberal at heart and so the idea of independent sort of currency natives and store, store of wealth outside the the money system, I'm philosophically uh, well well disposed of. The problem is, I see, is you're really up against, you know, the biggest monopoly of all, and that is government. And so government is not going to let crypto flourish outside the system. 
Yes. And so therefore the value, well, you're just back to the just another another form of paper currency if it's regulated and becomes and, you know, the central banks start issuing their own cryptocurrencies, which there's talk of. So I think it's it's a bit challenged. The underlying technology side of things is uh, is probably where it's all, all going to, you know, sort of go and, you know, new new payment systems, which have also been challenged by regulation. But no, I, I'm not going to be putting money into cryptocurrencies. The, the amount of conversations I've had with my children and, the, and, and their friends, I felt like a dinosaur seven years ago and I still do. Um, but they're getting a bit of a lesson now. You know, yeah. Decarbonisation is a very, very well used word at the moment. Yep. I, th- I think you know, that, that continues on with government mandates and, and policy. I think the areas of opportunity in that space is, you know, really around the technology side of things and finding new energy sources. You know, the, the one for Australia is nuclear. It's a bit, depending upon your views around the long tail risk, you know, that's that's just a sitter because that's a very efficient way and the technology, my understanding, is really quite advanced and, the you know, the number of fatalities in that space are kind of less than the, you know, people falling off, you know, windmill towers. Yes. So it's pretty pretty low in, a, in an absolute number sense and the technology is even better today, you know, modulised, safer, and more efficient. So, you you know, you're seeing, definitely seeing signs of that re- re-emerging. Hydrogen, a lot of talk about. I don't really have a strong strong view on that. But And then and then sort of, old, you know, the driving of efficiency, you know, simpler lifestyles. I see a lot of companies are really, you know, driving into, you know, re- reducing the size of their, their chocolate bars, you know, changing packaging, you know, be more environmentally really conscious se- sensitive. But, there's, mm. you know, there's a there's both a community aspect to that. There's an efficiency and a cost benefit from that as well. So there's you know quite a lot of you know benefit in moving towards that that more uh, you know environmentally uh, attractive lifestyle and products. And finally, active versus passive investing. Clearly, there's been a, a debate about this, and it's ongoing. Yeah, I mean you know the the case for passive is pretty strong. You know the number of outperforming fund managers when you do the the data analytics properly after fees is you know call it 30%, you know, academically peer-reviewed studies internationally. So I don't, I don't have any pushback or argument for that. So other than to say you've got to pick your, fund man- your friendly fund manager very carefully and, you know, thankfully we've fallen into the 30% across all our, all our, our funds. I guess a little, you know, under the hubris of humility when uh, I tell a little story about, you know, the ice village up in Switzerland where the, um, you know, the, the guy, no, no one little stall owner next to the the frozen lake he couldn't get anyone to rent his his skis and gloves to to go out on this beautiful lake because everyone was fearful of you know the ice cracking and falling in, into the, uh, the the frozen lake waters and so this fellow his cousin was actually the mayor and he said look you know I've got to get this business going we need some leadership will you come down on the weekend and go skiing and just show all the villagers that's totally safe and so he, he goes out there there's a few figure eights with his cousin the mayor and you know a couple of the villagers saw the mayor out there and took great confidence from that leadership role. And so one by one, the villagers all came onto the onto the village lake. And you know what happens, right? The, the last <laughs> villager gets on there and it's just too much weight and they, you know, the ice cracks. So I think passive investing and the innovation around ETFs, which, you know, I think there's a lot to like about some of those fundamental ETFs, but the level of, I guess, granularity around a lot of those ETFs, you know, has taken it off into a kind of a casino feel to me beyond their original idea of asset allocators using indexes 
to sort of construct, you know, professional portfolios. Yes. So there is a weight of money in that space and I think this downturn, it might get tested. Well, what happens when you get unwind and redemptions from those? Now, in you know, in the GFC and, and even in COVID, you know, there was the test and those ETFs, in not all of them, but in the main, they, they kind of held up. So, you know, there's there's maybe some, some confidence that they withstood that. But I, I would be watchful as to, you know, particularly in that retail market where, you know, these products are very proliferated, just how committed people are to those products because they're quite illiquid, some of them. So I think that the role of, you know, re- real investing has never looked better. You know, the ability to get, get away from, from indexes or out of the road of, you know, problematical, you know, sectors and, and so forth for, for active investors. But, you know, that's going to come down to skill and dexterity and so forth. So, you know, I think uh, we're in for a, you know exciting time with lots of opportunities, but not without risk. Just fantastic, Peter. Absolutely. I just wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions outside of business. You're Melbourne-based. What's your football team? Oh, thanks for that question. <laughs> uh, my, my football side has not won a grand final at the MCG for 58 years. <laughs> so, you know, it's the Demons, right? Yeah. We won one here in yeah. Perth last yeah. year, but I wasn't yeah. there. So it doesn't count. We're, we're, we're going for one more at the G this year. Well, you're looking good this year. You sure are. Yeah, look, it's a long, long way home, but, you know, we'd like to keep a lid on these things, Tim. Well, look, congratulations on last year anyway. I think you deserved it. You've got three beautiful kids, Dylan, Bronte and Paris. You've managed to work the work-life balance well? Uh, I, I would say early early years wasn't so good. Right. Yeah. I've, you know, I've got a great relationship with my kids now. Ten years ago was not so good. So we've... Um, yeah, you know, one of the lessons I guess in, in life is you know the work-life balance thing or, or, or family thing is really important. I was frankly a bit unbalanced in the early early formative years. Have some regret about that, but I'm playing, uh, doing what I can, Tim, in terms of playing catch-up footy on on that, and yes. uh, that's that's been very successful. Actually, thanks to my my new partner Sapana Basin, she's been uh, pivotal in in sort of bringing the family together and you know really re- rebuilding and nourishing relationships with children. Oh, that's fantastic, Peter. The role of meditation in your life has also been pretty strong. For the listeners, just enhance on the benefits of meditation for you. And I ask that in the context of when you're running such a large amount of money and and the performance is such a big thing that you need to sort of daily, you're mark to mark every month or every day in essence. You know, how do you, how do you deal with it? Tim, in the in the mid nineteen nineties, um, during my my children's formative years, I, I was a bit of a maniac around, I guess, um, you know, attention to performance and companies and so forth. And um, one, one would describe me as a bit of a stress head. Yes. And you know, there's another podcast in the, I guess, the psychological insecurities and fears and so forth that drive and motivate people. And I was definitely in that that category. And there's a little church opposite 101 Collins Street. Underneath it, there's a little dark room called the Menagerie and it's like a little meditation room. And I'd wander across there in, at lunchtime, you know, just completely stressed out and in conflict with some colleagues and politics and stocks, stocks that are going down and so forth. And, and, in uh, need of a breather. It, it, you know, I'd go, it's like a little sanctuary and there's a little candle in the middle with some running running fountain water. And, you know, I wasn't in the fetal position, but not far from it, <laughs> to, just to get some respite from the stress, if, effectively. Yes. I had to stop going to that, that little menagerie because 
you know, you couldn't really see other, there's chairs, there's other people in there. But one day I, I started to see colleagues walk in there and I was so embarrassed, you know, I think, <laughs> the, hey, seeing them and be them seeing me. So I had to stop going there. But on a serious note, meditation and, and just the, I guess the, philo- what I'd call, you know, Vedic and yogic philosophy, which is much more than just meditation, has been just profound for me around this idea of presence and focus and being able to, and this bleeds very much into the investment philosophy I was talking about before, you really be able to control or focus in on things that you can control, letting go of things that you just can't can't change and having the wisdom to know what the difference is between those two concepts. It's a complete mental game. So in simple terms, meditation is really mind mind health, you know, mind management and, you know, bringing a level of, uh, you know, self-awareness, which is a really interesting journey to go on because just, you know, just when you arrive at enlightenment, you sort of get another <laughs> uppercut from life and, you know, you learn, you know, there's all sorts of drivers behind one's own thought patterns. And it's been such a helpful thing for me in, in investing, but more importantly, life, you know, it's just brought a, I guess, a, an ability to rank order what's, what's important. Yes. What should one focus, you know, you get out of bed, what what actually do you, you focus on? Is it really good in question of fund managers? Because, you know, we've all got a lot, lots of pretty pretty sophisticated statements about that. But it's a, such a complicated, over-proliferated, you know, information everywhere. What, how do you work out how to start the day and finish the day and so forth? So meditation has been absolutely profound for me and I'm a great, you know, great promoter of it. Not for everyone. There's other, other ways, you know, you can meditate in all sorts of, different ways but I'm often um, you know in the sports analogy give you two quick ones third quarter of the grand final the ability of Melbourne to reset is a word that Simon Goodwin uses yes is all about the meditative mindset and actually taking stock actually focusing in on what works my other all-time favorite is uh, Roger Federer in tennis for those tennis lovers it's a profound and you know those top three legends all have the same attribute on kind of break points in grand slams, his statistics around serving is just goes up. It is phenomenal how they can pull out those absolute elites. The right point at the right time demarcates them from the rest, not their averages. Because if you you just look at their averages, you know, there's lots of really amazing players. So it's, and before, before the serves, those big serves, Federer, I've heard him talking about this, goes into this kind of relaxation mode. Just re- yes. re- kind of this letting concept of letting go and resets. and, and, and su- surrendering, yeah. not not giving up. Don't confuse the word surrender, but just actually acceptance of the adversity or the challenge one is facing and embracing the, I guess, the ability to lean into what what's worked. You know, this is what we spend a lot of time analysing: what what actually has worked in our history, what hasn't worked. Stop doing that and do more of what works. What it's, works. It's, it's that simple, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> but the mind is just 80 billion neurons of, of distraction and emotion. And so actually getting on top of that and under, you know, self-understanding is, is absolutely critical to any sort of mastery in my, my uh, observation experience. Gosh, just a fantastic insight. And I must say, Peter, we, we've sort of run out of a bit of time, but we could talk for a long time about all the other parts that I've, I've got a list of questions a mile long. But I must say, 
It's been an absolutely wonderful chat. And I just want to also say thanks a lot for taking the time out. You've just been very generous with your views and your insights. And we now understand a lot more about you as a person, but how you've got to where you've got is is quite phenomenal. And the success has been extraordinary. And you've given a really good insight into not only your business, but you, which is which is really, really quite powerful for us as as listeners to, to this story. So I just wanted to say thanks very much for joining us again. And we really appreciate it. And I do look forward to another podcast with you at some point where we can expand a bit more on some of the other areas because there's a lot to go through. But Peter, on behalf of us all at Euros Hartleys, and thanks very much for your time. Well, thank, thank you for um, inviting me in, Tim. It's um, absolute pleasure. L- love coming to Perth, the, uh, the innovation and uh, get up and go centre of Australia. Yeah, happy to come back. Thanks a lot, Peter. Thanks, Tim. It's been a great time. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Harleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.